Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Drea Letamendi, and you're listening to the Optimist in Progress podcast, a show that invites change leaders, innovators, and self-starters who inspire and fuel the practice of being optimistic. In this episode, Tom Johnstone and I speak to guest John Alexander. John is the co-founder of the New Citizen Project, a strategy and innovation consultancy that aims to shift the dominant story of the individual and society from consumer to citizen. John is also the author of the forthcoming book, Citizens, Why the Key to Fixing Everything is All of Us. The book aims to show us exactly what we must do to survive and thrive as individuals and organizations, as nations and globally. John is a fellow of the Young Foundation and the Royal Society of Arts, as well as a member of the World Economic Forum's Political Entrepreneurship Network. I admit that I went into our conversation with a critical and curious lens. It sounded more philosophical and unattainable than something we can all do on a daily basis. We're in a very helpless feeling time. Yet, we can admit we are living deep in the consumer story, a concept John names as a state of being self-interested. But how do we truly unhinge ourselves from the culture of capitalism? And what exactly are the steps to do that? What I found is that the answer lies within the balance of the self and society. How to shift from being me-centric to being community-centric. The reality is that this core idea, this constant balancing, is a perennial paradox. Some of the answers you'll find in this exchange, others you won't. But if anything, what we found is a shared agreement that we can do better. We hope you enjoy this conversation with John Alexander. So, John, welcome to Optimist in Progress. I'm looking forward to the conversation today with you, Andrea. To prepare the ground of the conversation, we usually ask a broad question around optimism. I heard you refer to hope in a speech you made at the Athens Democracy Forum. What's your take on optimism and how do you think of the word different to hope uh, and apply it in how you live? I usually say I don't really like optimism, but <laughs> I'll make an exception for you guys. But basically, I... Uh... I really like Rebecca Solnit, who's a wonderful writer, talks about a definition of hope where she says that she tries to distinguish hope from optimism and pessimism. And in her view, she says optimism is the belief that things will be all right no matter what we do. And pessimism is the belief that things will be terrible no matter what we do. And her argument is that both those excuse us from action. Uh, and and that actually, she talks about hope as existing in the space where we don't know what will happen and therefore our actions matter. And I think that uh, that really appeals to me, the idea of agency that is rooted in that conception of hope. I mean, I, I, to be honest, I'm less attached to the, to the words. And I think a lot of people talk about optimism and I, and I think in exactly that way, meaning that the idea that you, you believe that a better future is possible and you are prepared to act for it. And I think both those beliefs, the, the belief that it's possible and the belief that it's, that it's important to act for it uh, are, are both essential. It's really interesting. We, we get people's perspective on this all the time. And our version of optimism is actually a very active endeavor. But I think what's interesting there is you're talking about the dynamism, the agency, the potentially the activism to try and get towards something uh, fresh. And whether that's hope or optimism is, is a really interesting you know, piece of language. But actually, the, the input is the same. The words aren't important. What, what's essential is the combination of imagination and, and space for something better and the commitment and, and personal sense of, of, of capability and necessity of doing something about it. 
There's something to say about early experiences and how our formative years help shape our perspective. And so I'm wondering about that with you. Can you share with us uh, your early life? Um, what are some uh, formative events or people or just background that you think contributed to this outlook? I'm tempted to say Tom Johnston and uh, <laughs> open it. We've, we've known each other a very long time. Uh, Tom and I uh, both used to um, row very seriously. And, and I think I'd probably put my my sporting background and my 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 time as a as a, as a wannabe athlete. I was never quite as good as Tom, but uh, but but we both uh, we both tried to try to do it pretty seriously. And I think some of that competition and that desire for for success kind of drove me into some of the places I found myself. Drove me into the advertising industry originally and made me made me able to sort of find a way there. I guess the other thing I would say is, I mean, you know, you know the saying that every 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 unhappy childhood or every unhappy family is interesting but every happy one is 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 boring and the same or something like that i i had a very happy upbringing i was i grew up in a fam in a very loving family with with a lot of support i think as the journey i've taken has become more challenging and uh the the fact of having that love around me and knowing i could depend on it um has allowed me to to ask deeper questions about what what I'm doing in the world and and what I might be doing in the world and 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 know that I will be I will be loved and supported regardless. None of it would have been possible without that. So I think those pro those two things are probably the 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 most defining of of my kind of early life, as it were. That that the sporting commitment and the desire to to win, uh, but also the the love and support to enable me to kind of question things a bit more. What do you think the values were that stuck with you because I hear you saying you know you're a part of uh, of a team you're a part of a what sounds like a happy upbringing do you think there are some values that are core to your personhood now that spring from those experiences I'm sure there are and um, that I think there's this phrase that, that actually my my business partner Irene and I both use a lot and which is just start with love I don't think that was made explicit uh, or sort of named in exactly that way in my in my family and in and in early life, I, but it was always felt for sure. But I think it's become more and more explicit for me that that's 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 the beginning point for everything. The the idea of starting with love, the idea of trying to start from a place where you do your level best to see see the best in everyone and believe in others. Definitely. So we know each other from a couple of places. You've mentioned rowing. We also worked together in advertising. And I knew you in that role as a strategist in advertising. I'd be really interested to hear what initially drew you to that industry and how did you develop while working on brands? How did you develop this understanding and desire to explore looking into citizens and citizenship rather than kind of consumerism? I guess I, I hinted at it before. I think I think the the competition um, really was quite powerful and addictive to me for for quite a while. And having come from a, a life where up until the point where I started to work in that industry, I'd, I'd only ever really wanted to be a be a professional athlete. And then I remember um, early on working in advertising. Um, my first boss said to me. Um, what you've got to remember is that the average consumer sees something like 3,000 commercial messages a day. And your job is to cut through that. You've got to make yours the best. 
And I can see Drea shaking her head. It's, it's, it's such a, and, but you know, Drea, like the thing, the thing I've got to tell you is that for the first few years, I could focus on the second half of that sentence. Like your job is to cut through that. You've got to make yours the best. And it's an incredibly stimulating environment to be in. To, it's a very creative, in a certain frame, space to be in. And the energy that comes around a, a big pitch, for example, when you're, when you're up for a really big piece of business and you could win it for your team and you could, like, it, it, it was the closest analogy I could imagine, really, to, to a big race and, and, and in a professional context. And, and, I, and I thrived on that for a while, but until I started uh, going where... Where, where Drea went immediately and Tom and I should have gone more quickly in our lives and went 3,000 a day? Like, so what? <laughs> <laughs> it's probably even more now. Yeah, well, I did actually see. I mean, I, I, I found a study the other day when I was um, checking the references and so forth for the, for, for the book that said that the latest uh, ethnographic studies estimated between four and 10,000 a day for the average. And age, age is a factor in that. So the average student at UCLA, for example, is probably very close to the 10,000. Right. It, it's incredible. Our brains are simply not designed and wired to process all that information. And so I can imagine that what we're seeing around us are the impacts of uh, this, this fast moving, uh, vast amount of messages that, that we're experiencing. I think that's right. I think... Um... I mean, the way I've come to think of it is that, so I went, I went into the advertising industry with that kind of appetite for competition. Also, I would say in, it was 2003, sorry, Tom, to, to hold up our, our, <laughs> our ages. To the world. <laughs> I'm proud. It's fine. <laughs> but um, but it, it was only a couple of years after the, the Twin Towers came down and, and the leaders of the, the so-called free world came out and said, go shopping, right? Like, that that that's the context and that's the that's the story in which we we were that's the story we inhabited and 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 actually the more i've as i've done this work and sort of pursued these ideas and, and this inquiry i've come to see that idea of story as a really important way of understanding what this is like when we are surrounded with three to ten thousand commercial messages a day all of which have the underlying message you're a consumer then we are effectively telling ourselves a story. And we're telling ourselves a story about how to be, what it is to be good, what the right things to do are. And, 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 I've, and if I may, like, I, just to unpack the, the briefly the, the kind of key set of ideas uh, or the first set of ideas at the heart of the book, which is really an offer of a way of seeing the moment in time we're living in through the lens of these stories. And I, I, I would offer this sort of lens of saying that until the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th, we were living in something like a subject story, which said the right thing to do is to keep your head down and do as you're told. On the basis that the God-given few had power over society and, and they deserved it and they knew best and they would lead us to the best outcomes for the whole. And then end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th, that kind of collapsed in on itself. And out of the two world wars, we got the consumer story and, and the consumer story said the right thing to do is to get the best deal for yourself, to look out for number one, to choose the best option for you from those that are offered. And if everyone does that, if everyone pursues self-interest, then that will add up to the best outcomes for society as a whole. And I think what we're living in now, and I, I offer this to you, that, that we are now living in an exactly analogous collapse, like the just as the subject story collapsed very soon after the, the, the pinnacle of the British Empire, 
the consumer story is now collapsing and it, and it, and it threatens to pull, pull us all down with it, actually. And the offer I'm making and the, the, the reason I wrote the book is to say, I, I don't think that that's the only option. I, I don't think we have to just stare at that decline. I think something is emerging. And, and that's something I call the citizen story, which is an idea that the right thing to do is actually to get involved, to shape the context of your own life, to, to share your ideas and insights as to an energy and resources as to what's best for society as a whole. Because all of us are better than any of us, all of us are smarter than any of us. And, and if we all contribute, then we might, that's the way we'll find out, we'll figure out what's best for society as a whole. And so it's, to, to, it's a very optimistic uh to use the language in in the way i know you i now know you mean it uh way of thinking about the world precisely because it says it doesn't refuse to acknowledge the the moment in time we're living in and the and the, and the troubles and, and and crises and catastrophes but it also says there's another way and and there's another way that we can build i suppose it's challenging to i think for many of us to grasp this, you know, when you say that now our culture is living deep in the consumer story and you describe what's happening, uh, the overconsumption, the, the competition, the accumulation of, of things, um, this, you know, belief in a zero sum game, which, which I see quite frequently when we, when we attach ourselves to that philosophy, I think what's challenging then is the next step. You know, how do we then uh, turn that tide? How, what can you offer in terms of the signs that you are perceiving uh, that tell us, no, this is a shift that we really can make? I mean, the, the joyous thing with this is it's kind of funny. Like in the work I do as a new citizenship project with Irene and the team, we have this, um, this little phrase that the, this moment we love to talk about is like seeing the veil drop. And it's like, it's like when people suddenly go, Oh my God! Yes, I can see it. It's actually everywhere, isn't it? And it's like, and you, and you start to look around your 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 community or your your workplace or wherever, and you can see the small things. Um, and look, Optimus drinks. The existence of it is a perfect example. But but if I give you one that that in the research for the book was the one that um, made the hairs on the back of my neck stand on end. It was it was really researching uh, what's happened to the Taiwanese government over the last decade. Um, and the story of Taiwan is just fascinating. Uh, the, I, I won't. I'll, I'll try not. I'll try to do it briefly for you, but but it's worth giving it a little bit of space to breathe. Basically, um, around 2012, they were much where the UK, I would argue, is now. That they, they had, the, the government was saying um, effectively, shush, little people, just go shopping. Like we leave the leave the complicated stuff to the government, and we'll we'll look after you. They they called it the economic power up plan. Uh, and what happened was a group of hackers started to organize. Um, and what they did was they built uh, parallel websites to government websites. And they called themselves GovZero because the URLs of these websites were .g0v.tw. Uh, and, and what they built uh, essentially were participatory shadow structures for government where people could kind of uh, read through budget items, upvote them, downvote them, comment on them, go to meetings to discuss what, what was going on. And, it, and and this sort of grew, it was quite small, but it was growing and, and, and it started to get a good foothold among the student population in Taipei in particular. And then in 2014, the government, a, a trade bill with mainland China came to, came to the parliament and, and the government tried to rush it through. And the, uh, there was a student protest inspired by the Occupy movement a few years earlier, and they they occupied the parliament. 
And the Gov Zero team got a broadband connection in and streamed what the protesters were doing to the, across the whole population. And what they were doing was debating the clauses of the trade bill. And, and then the key moment came. So this is all like grassrootsy, protesty, great stuff, really important. But then the key moment came when the Speaker of the Parliament had pressure put on him. He was a member of the governing party by political affiliation, had pressure put on him by the President and the Premier and to, to boot out the protesters. And what he did was he said, no, this is democracy. This is what this is. This is what this place is for. And that reframe moment uh, just unlocked the whole thing, really. Since then, uh, very soon after that, um, one of the leaders of the hacker movement, Audrey Tang, uh, became a mentor to one of the government ministers. Uh, at the next election, when the new president was elected, uh, Audrey was made a minister himself. Uh, and um, and then she's actually been responsible for leading the, the Taiwanese response to COVID, which, which has basically been to say this is going to be a national team effort. And they did things like uh, set up a phone line where any citizen could bring in with ideas for how the country's response could be better, like really made it participatory. And I guess the reason I sort of dwell in that and the reason that really made my, the hairs in the back of my neck stand on end, as I say, is because I think that transformation that sort of 10 year, it's 10 years from, from 2012 to now, it was four years uh, from, 20, from, from that starting point of the economic power up plan to Audrey Tang being a minister in the Taiwanese government. Like these things can happen incredibly quickly at a nation scale, a nation of 23 million people. I think it's a, it's a very powerful parable for the whole or microcosm of the whole, because I think if we understand this thing that it's happening everywhere that, that there are there are businesses for all that for all that my friend tom is an exceptional human being and and optimist is an exceptional thing there are many optimists uh in in all sense of the word and they are bubbling everywhere and there are many self-organizing communities there are many there are many local authorities and councils and city administrations that are opening up there are this is happening all over the place and happening everywhere and what it requires to take hold is those moments like where what the Speaker of the Taiwanese Parliament did happens. Those moments will be created. What's required is for the people in positions of power to come in behind them, to open up to them, to get in behind the energy that's there anyway, because we are citizens by nature, because we're doing this stuff and always will do this stuff. And that, that I think, is what gives me most, most hope, most optimism, is that it, it is happening everywhere. And, and I think if we can name it and see it, then then we can open up to it and step into it. I'd love to pick up on that because I think there's something really interesting about individual agency that you're picking up there. And Lisa and I were driven to create our business, Optimist, uh, being a mission-based company. We kind of almost thought about that before we put the products out in the world. We're awaiting full B Corp certification. I know that um, the new citizenship project is a B Corp as well. Um, but really, we wanted to create a company here that is part of shaping a better future. Can you talk a little bit about your citizen story from both an individual and an organizational approach? Because I think, you know, as you mentioned there, sometimes people have the opportunity to be part of shaping an organization that does something, but actually a lot of people don't. They can just be a human in this space. What can, how can they approach that? So to start with the, the sort of individual side of things, one of the things I, I've started sort of popped out of my mouth the other day, I was like, 
yes, I do believe that is is that the the biggest thing an individual can do is to be less of an individual. It's like find the others because there are there are others everywhere, and 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 just because you don't necessarily lead an organization if you're part of a part of an organization there will be others thinking it too and you can find them if you're but in your in your hometown you can find the others as well and i think that well there's there's a lovely way of talking about it which um a guy called stephen jenkinson i'd really recommend his work to you guys and, and your listeners that he he studied end of life times in particular and, and, and study them by working very closely and living with with indigenous peoples and and, and he talk, he writes very powerfully about the idea of home and about uh, belonging and and the idea that home isn't a feeling home is at home is an action home like being at home is something you uh, is a sort of is a skill is something you work at and do but it involves finding the others it involves learning and relearning he talks about like learning and relearning what it is that makes us who we are and the relationships that make us who we are. For me, that, that's the role of an individual as a citizen is, is find home, like figure out where, where is home for you? Where do you have the encouragement and the possibility to, to do something? And where are, where are the others who you could do it with? That, that's the sort of starting point for, for anyone. And I've found so many wonderful stories of, of people in some of the some of the hardest situations, uh, uh, a slum of Nairobi, a guy called Kennedy Adede is a story I tell in the book. Who, who basically started from literally nothing, like started from less than nothing, watching his sister have to marry the man who raped her because she had no other way of having an income. And, uh, watching his own his best friend as a thirteen year old be stoned to death, and Kennedy like found a way, found the others, brought them together, built something, and now is now is starting a thing called the World Communities Forum. It's, and, and, and yet that isn't to put the entire burden on individuals. Um, and I think that's important because it's the the burden really I think is on is on organizations and people in positions of, of power. Because and to draw back to the speaker of the Taiwanese Parliament, it's it's those people who actually have are kind of the gatekeepers are the ones who can who can open to this who can allow this to take hold this story demands a different thing of leaders it doesn't demand i think we, in the in the subject story the role of a leader was to command and and direct and tell people what to do in the in the consumer story the the role of a leader was to serve and provide choices and and on options in in a citizen story, I think I think that there's a new role for leaders emerging, which is something like the facilitator, something like the the space holder, the enabler, the the, the supporter. Maybe I, I I haven't quite found the language, and I'd love to talk more about that. I find it fascinating. But the role for organisations and leaders is to make the space, have the courage to invite people in, and be proud to sort of put forward an idea of, of what the world should be like and encourage others to come on that journey with you and know that actually that's that's probably going to be a, a really good way of doing business as well. I love what you're talking about there. Um, it's really interesting, you know, in there you covered, you know, what you can do as a as a person, how organisations can, can look at it too. And we've talked quite a lot about social well-being on the podcast. It's come up a few times. I think there is a big conversation around self-care right now which is hugely important because there are so many challenges to our own kind of well-being right now that's very important to look um, after yourself but actually often that is done on a very individual level and 
couple of things you're talking about there is looking after collective well-being and thinking of others. Dre, I know you've talked about how even though that is a use of energy when you're giving to community or thinking about others, there's something in that reciprocation that energizes you as well. So it's not a selfless act. It is something that is uh, something that you you gain from and, and it's not just an act of altruism. I think that's really true and really but I like I think one of the great lies of the consumer story is the idea that we are all atomized independent individuals with our, with, with something that can be identified as our own self-interest. So actually this is lovely one another of the moment my favorite moments of the research for the book I was I was digging into the etymology of citizenship and and the, and the word citizen. And I think there's this there's this kind of assumption that it's geographically placed, and that, and that I think goes into the whole thing of like citizen of somewhere and what passport do you have and all that stuff, which I think is really quite dangerous and and is a is a corruption of the concept of citizenship. But when you actually dig into it, so the assumption comes that 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 city is the is because it's the shorter word, citizen the word citizen must derive from city because it means so it must mean you're a citizen of a city. Was actually the way where where it comes from. The literal derivation is together people, co plus veer is together person, together man. And I, I take that to mean a citizen is someone who is who is meaningless except in community. Like we we are unique individuals. We are all different. We are all wonderful and special. And 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 that's and the consumer story gave us that in a way that the subject story denied it. But what the consumer story did is it is it made that at the expense of 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 situating us in a community, in a place, in a in in relationships, and and the idea of citizen as together people, and and actually the word city derives from citizen and just means a place where people are together. It's like when you flip that in your mind. I love language in those sorts of ways. It just it lets you just go no right like. There is no self-interest that that can be identified as like meaning that I can I should be entirely self-sufficient. I should be able to fix all my own problems. I should be able to. The only self that is meaningful is is a self in community. Is a is a is a me in in context. Is a me in relationship. And and when you know that, then I think you've maybe got a better hope of of finding constructive, really meaningful ways to to look after yourself. Let's talk more about the power of words, the power of language, and how we connect and uh, kind of translate our experience and also learn about our, our others through, through language. Um, language has a huge influence on the building of our own identities and our connection to others. Uh, you use the terms subject story, consumer story, citizen story. You've talked a little bit about kind of the breakdown of those words and uh, in, in your explanation of how we could uh, exist in these roles and, and how we see ourselves as individuals. Uh, I know that, uh, especially in the U.S., we've changed a lot of our, our language. I actually worked for an organization that changed the words clients into consumers, which I'm sure piques your interest. So there was a whole organizational shift in language, everything, the branding, our documents, our, uh, it, it was a government run uh, healthcare system. Everything changed to a consumer based service. 
And I saw how that shift in language really impacted the culture in really intentional ways. Um, so I'm interested in hearing more from you about um, your work in this, the, the words you choose and um, how that language has an impact on our intentions. Yeah, I, I think it's huge. I mean, one of the, we tend to think of words as inert, right? As just like you choose them, you use them, they, they, they just, they carry some meaning for a little while, not too much. But I think language is, the words we choose shape what we can think. They, they, they set up kind of tram lines that, that we can't step off, we can't, we can't move away from. And the word consumer, I think, is a, is a hugely powerful one. I don't, think, I don't think consumer is the only word. I think words like client and, and, uh, have carry some of the same things, actually, where, and, and shift us away. But, but when there is there's some actually really fascinating evidence about the word consumer specifically, where so there's one uh, peer-reviewed study that we, we then, uh, as a new citizenship project, did some work to replicate at scale where a slightly simplified version, 2,000 people were given a dilemma, a scenario, where they were told you're one of four households dependent on a single well for your water supply, and the well's starting to run dry, uh, so you need to use less water. And then ask two questions. Firstly, to what extent are you willing to use less water? And secondly, to what extent do you trust the other three households to use less water? Uh, and for half the sample, for 1,000 people, the word household in the, in the setting up of the scenario has changed the word consumer. And the result that you get, everything else is the same, nationally representative, statistically standardized samples, but the half of the sample for whom the word was consumer are significantly less uh, willing to compromise and significantly less likely to trust one another as well. So that, that particular word is, is an incredibly powerful carrier of language. One of, one of the ways I put it is that what we've become is is consumers who occasionally vote and what we really need to be as citizens who consume because then then the word gets away from being a noun that, that that's this sort of carrier of identity and just becomes a, an, a verb an action that we might do but i also think the word citizen is really important and i think it's i was just hinting at it before but i think the word citizen is a word that is contested and contestable but really has to be fought for in this moment in time. And I, I do worry that we might abandon the word citizen because of how it's being weaponized in certain cases, because of how it's being opposed to non-citizen, because of how it's being used to say that refugees and migrants have no, should have no rights. And associating citizenship, reducing citizenship to a concept of status, to, to something, to a possession, it's, it's actually the consumerization of citizenship in a lot of ways, that reduction of citizenship to an object. And I'm so I'm a huge fan of and have learned loads from the work of, of Baratunde Thurston and, uh, just up the road from you guys and his How to Citizen podcast and and Eric Liu up in Seattle and the, the Citizen University and the idea of Civic Saturdays and the muscle building work of, of citizenship. And I, I think that stuff, that that work and that insistence on language is something I'm I really want to be part of. Some various people said to me, are you really, I'm worried about using the word citizens as the title of the book. And I'm like, no, that I, I, I make a very conscious choice that this is, this is, this is about championing that language and, and taking it back actually and insisting on holding it and making, putting that meaning of, of civic identity into it rather than just the status, just the passport. So I'm very excited about reading citizens and this is a great, insight into some of the thinking that's in there 
but you've been working on this for almost a decade and the book is an embodiment of tons of work that you've done uh, with your organization but also personally where will your energies be directed in the near future so the book's out in the world what next so what I'm trying to do in the immediate term it's a lovely question uh, is try and stay quite present in this uh, and try and make the moment of putting these ideas into the world as useful as possible so I've, I've got this I, I have this little mantra to myself that I'm trying to do trying to do the world's most useful book tour <laughs> it's like trying to <laughs> trying to um, offer to go I have this like invite me and I will come vibe which is like trying to go where where people are trying to do this work and where they maybe are finding that the that the circumstances uh, and the, the headlines of our time are making them run out of energy and hope and, and trying to go and do events in, in the places with them and, and, and try and be a platform for them rather than try and be the star of the show myself and, and, and do events where I'm talking to them and, and helping them see what that, what's going on in their own local place and, and asking the audience to see like who else is doing something here and, and what do you need from other people in the room? And, and so, Really, I'm, I'm very focused on that ambition of trying to build that and offer that to the world. And, and you know, maybe no one will take me up on it, but it's, it's, a, it's a sort of practicing what, I'm pre what I preach vibe. It's like, if I see the book as just a product that I'm trying to sell, then I'm not really doing the citizen thing, right? If I, if I see the book as one way that people can buy into the ideas that I'm trying to put into the world, then, then what are the others? What, what can I, how can I create the space where they can, they can sort of take ownership of the ideas and I can be sort of helpful in that? So I'm, I'm playing with that and seeing where that goes and, 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 and trying to manage my own energy at the same time. And at the same time, trying to challenge organisations and institutions and, and trying to say, where might this go? Who, who needs to hear this? Uh, and prod some of the big boys, right? See if I can prod some governments and say, like, what would it look like to do things the way the Taiwanese have done rather than just rather than keep us trapped in, in, a, in, a, in a concept of democracy that limits us only to choosing between the options you old white men decide to offer us every few years, like he says as a 40-year-old white man, but we'll see where I go with from there. I'm trying, trying to do that thing differently. But yeah, so, that, so I think I, I don't really know where after the book, because in a way the book itself is only a means to an end. It's, uh, it's only one expression of something. Imagining how much prodding and provocation you're about to encounter in this implementation stage, um, what do you think you can do to take care of yourself? Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of selfless work uh, involved in, in the creation of this movement and in this book, and I'm, I'm curious to hear from you. It's a personal question, right? What are you doing to restore your own sense of faith, values, and well-being along this journey? So... A lot of it, I think, is about that idea of, of making sure I'm spending time with the people I love. Um, I'm very lucky to have a, have a partner who, uh, well, she's, she's been around almost as long as I've known Tom. So, so, <laughs> so, uh, so we've, we've been together a very long time and, and we, we run and, and cycle together and, and we're part of, a, part of a club locally. And, and, I, and, and those... those it's in, it's, it sort of speaks to what we were, what I was saying, what we were talking about earlier, the, the individual in context. Like I, I think I'm practicing what I preach in that space because I, I am 
I do find it, it, I, I do have things that are important to me to do. It's important to me to be in nature, to 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 run and be in my body. Um, but it's also important to me to do those things with people I love and to spend time with those people not talking about this work as well and just being John and not expecting too much of myself too much of the time. I, I, I do have a, I think, I think maybe where I'd want to leave the answer to that question is I, I am quite wary of a kind of hero complex that, that I think a lot of, a lot of people have in this world. Um, and particularly a lot of white guys of a certain age, we're kind of in, in Anglo-Saxon culture, we're kind of brought up to, to, to believe that we can save the world in some way. And, and, and I'm, I'm really wary, like catch myself sometimes thinking, yeah, I'm going to go and do this. And it's like, no, like step out of that. How do I, how do I not get trapped in that? Like the decisions that I've made of, of trying to, trying to hold space in different ways. It's, it's a bit of a stumbling answer. I apologize, but, um, I don't honestly know how successful I'm going to be in keeping myself myself, but I appreciate being asked it because it makes me more conscious of it as well. It's never a simple answer. I think for most of us, it's an ongoing journey, if not a struggle some days, right? Um, but I do want to uplift your mention of the self-preservation of this work and that it's a balance of ensuring you have this uh, encouraging movement that requires community but also tuning into your own needs and uh, engaging in, in the self, in the, the self-betterment, the development, the insights that you need to kind of keep this movement going. So that balance seems crucial in this work in particular. If I'm going to engage the community and encourage similar work, I also have to kind of be present in my own understanding of my identity and my relationship which is an individual idea, right? Like it's, it's that constant balance and, and um, that dialectical concept of I need to be an individual, but I also need to be, uh, I need to hold a lens of myself as a community member. Um, but I thank you for your answer. And I, I think it's inspiring uh, to, uh, to be vulnerable with us and, and to let us know that it's, you don't have a perfect formula just yet. We'll see how badly it goes. Hey? <laughs> <laughs> well, John, thank you so much for your your time today. I think you whether whether we say you're a beacon of hope or an optimist under our definition, I definitely would qualify you as one who's working really hard to try and make the future better, which is really inspiring. Um, I'd love to. Where can our listeners find out more about what you're doing? Where can they find citizens? What's the best place to to learn more about what you're up to? So in, in deeply ironic uh, hero complex fashion, I have a website that's johnalexander.net and it's all about me. No, <laughs> but um, you know, uh, there, there's the there's stuff will be on there. There's links to links to get the book and, and get a taster of the book and read the foreword and this, these sorts of things. And also to see where I'm talking. I'm hoping to be in the US uh, at the end of August, beginning of September. And I'd love to come and see you guys in person if I can as part of that. Well, we'll put links into the show notes so people can find you very easily. And we ask everyone the same thing at the end, which is leaving us with a bit of your own cultural inspiration. Clearly, you're putting a lot of energy out into the world to inspire others. But is there a track that we could put on our Optimist in Progress playlist that is something that you find inspiring? So I love this question. Uh, I'm going to give you um, the song that was number one when I was born, Tom. Which is uh, which is uh, a town called Malice by the Jam. Uh, Amazing. 
just to give you the lyric, it's uh, stop apologising for the things you've never done because time is short and life is cruel, but it's up to us to change this town called Malice. There must have been some kind of for, forming of you that happened on that day that you were born. Maybe that was playing. Maybe that was playing uh, as you came into the world because it's definitely taken a, a shape to how you've done things. Well, John, thank you so much. Really enjoyed the conversation. Really inspired by the work. There's no way that you're not seeing us when you come to LA. So I look forward to that soon. Uh, I look forward to meeting you both. Lovely to lovely to talk to you and spend some time. Such a pleasure to have this conversation. Be well. Thanks for listening to the Optimist in Progress podcast, brought to you by Optimist Drinks. This podcast is presented by Dr. Drea Lettermendi and me, Tom Johnston. It's produced and researched by Lisa Far Johnston, with original music from Reginald Science Perry and edited by Brian Ward and Aginia O'Dell. Email podcast at optimistdrinks.com with any questions or ideas and follow us at Optimist Drinks on Instagram for updates on upcoming shows.